Again, we'll worship our God in the reading and the hearing of his word. And you can see in your bulletin that we turn to 2 Samuel 17. So this week we're back to 2 Samuel. Remember last week we pressed pause on 2 Samuel and we looked at Psalm 3. That was last Sunday. And remember, we looked at that psalm last week because David wrote it when he was on the run from Absalom, which is exactly where we find ourselves these days in the unfolding story in 2 Samuel. The very fact that David wrote that psalm at that time, the fact that David was still a man of prayer, even when his own son rebelled against him and forced him to flee for his life, that only reinforced a point that we'd already made about David, which is that he was still trusting in God. He was still walking with God, even at a time when God himself was bringing upon David the bitter consequences of his own sin. In spite of what other people were saying about him, David trusted that God was for him. Trusted that God would deal justly with his enemies. David didn't have to take that upon himself, not ultimately. That's the kind of confidence that enables you to lie down and sleep sweetly as one who rests in God. So that's what we saw last week when we turned over to Psalm 3. This week we flip back to 2 Samuel. Just one chapter this week, chapter 17. And it's helpful to read this chapter against the backdrop of something that we saw last week in Psalm 3. Remember, one of the verses in that psalm says this, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. That's something we saw last week in Psalm 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. In other words... You, O Lord, are my protector. Well, sure enough, the Lord protects David. In 2 Samuel 17, the chapter that I'm about to read for us, and we're going to see that. He protects him. The other thing that we're going to see at the end of the chapter is that the Lord also provides for David at a time when he's on the run. In other words, he provides the very practical sustenance and supplies that David and his men need to keep going. And I often find that to be a useful pair when we think about the goodness that we need from God, to think about protection and provision. That's true when it comes to our earthly needs. It's true when it comes to our spiritual needs. We need God to protect us, and we need him to provide for us And they're both here in this chapter, in chapter 17. Before I read it for us, let me set the stage a little bit. The very first word in our chapter this morning is, moreover. So this is clearly a continuation of what happens at the end of the last chapter, chapter 16. And remember, what happened at the end of the last chapter was Ahithophel the Gilonite giving Absalom, David's son, Absalom, who's rebelled against him, Ahithophel gives Absalom some advice about how he might shore up his support among the people. 
by taking a rather awful public action that would send a signal that he, Absalom, means business, and that this claim upon the throne was no mere wishful thinking on the part of a petulant child, and that his claim was being realized. So Ahithophel gives Absalom that kind of advice. Absalom takes it. And that's where it says this about Ahithophel, this advisor, this counselor. This is the way chapter 16 ended. It says this, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So that's how chapter 16 ended. And now this morning we keep going, beginning with the word, moreover. So listen now to the word of God. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai the archite came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place, and as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. 
Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimahaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Behurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimehaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Maenaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother, and Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Maenaim, Shobai the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness." So there's our chapter today, Second Samuel 17. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories that we find in it, including the drama of this one. And yet again, we say this isn't just a dramatic tale that fascinates us. We hear this as your word to us today. And so we pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I said when we got started that it can be a useful pair when we think about the goodness of God that we need to think in terms of protection and provision. We need God to protect, protect. We need him to provide. And they're both here. We just heard them in this chapter, chapter 17. So let's take each of those two and think about them, reflect upon them. Protection 
and provision. I think we'll spend a little bit more time on the first of the two, the protection part. So if we reach 10 o'clock or so and you're beginning to despair, thinking when's he going to get to point number two, it's okay. Point number two will be on the shorter side. So let's think first of all about how God protects how God protects David and his servants ever since. Sometimes when somebody has managed to escape danger after danger, threat after threat, and they have dodged bullets in remarkable ways, they've extricated themselves from dire predicaments, and then they find themselves in danger again, threatened again in some way, at that point you might think, their number's up this time. Their luck's run out this time. Luck in air quotes. All of those other dangers and threats that they managed to escape, all of those other instances when it looked like they'd reached the end, but then they lived to tell the tale, not this time. This time's just one too many times. Surely they're not going to survive this one like the saying about the cat and his nine lives. At that point, you might think, this guy, he's lived his nine lives and survived, but not this one. You don't get ten. Maybe it's a character in an action film who somehow managed to survive the first two hours of the film, but in hour three, the walls are closing in, and you think, this is it. Maybe it's a politician whose weathered scandals and eked out close victories in the past, but now they've got a primary opponent who's got everything going for them, including youth. And you think, this is it. Maybe it's the Cincinnati Bengals. And you manage to beat the Raiders and the Titans and the Chiefs in spite of having no recognizable offensive line But now they're going up against the Rams with guys like Aaron Donald and Von Miller. Surely they're not going to survive this one. And there's been two weeks of that, that kind of reflection. It's like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts when that snake bites him. And the folks on that island say, this guy must be a murderer. He's managed to survive till now, but not this time. You can't keep Escaping like that forever. Well, if you didn't know how the story of David unfolds in 2 Samuel, if you were reading along in 2 Samuel for the first time, for that matter, if you were living through it when it was actually happening, you might be inclined to think something like that about David. His number's up this time. Think about everything we've seen as we've been making our way through the story of David. Going back to 1 Samuel, David managed to escape Saul. He had quite a few very close calls with Saul, but he found a way to escape them all. I mean, there was that one time when Saul was literally chasing him around a mountain. And he was this close to getting him and killing him until just in time Saul gets news. That forces him to withdraw. And David managed to escape the Philistines, the sworn enemy of the Israelites on their western border. At times, 
He was actually living in their territory and playing a very dangerous double game. And he survived it. David even managed to escape some of his fellow Israelites when they were perfectly willing to hand him over to Saul again and again. David got away just in time. But not this time, right? Surely not this time. Hasn't David exhausted his nine lives? Because he's really up against it now. Just stop and think about everything that David is up against as he's on the run from his own son, Absalom. Absalom by himself, but we, we need to give him his due, if we can put it that way. Absalom was a formidable opponent. He had a lot going for him. Absalom was a good-looking guy. We've been told that. And let's not kid ourselves that that didn't matter. It mattered then, and it still does when it comes to public opinion and power politics. Absalom was a good-looking young man. And Absalom was crafty in his own way. We've seen that. He knew how to play people and win them over. He was no dolt. He was patient, too, self-controlled. Whether he had vengeance in mind or a power grab, Absalom was patient and self-controlled so that he was willing to play his game for years. Bide his time and wait for the opportune moment to strike. Absalom was willing to play the long game. So that's why I say, just Absalom by himself makes this a dire circumstance for David, a formidable opponent. But when Ahithophel the Gilonite joins the cause as an advisor, as a counselor to Absalom, at that point you've gone from formidable rebellion to an apparently insurmountable opposition. Ahithophel is not one of those well-known Bible figures that most Christians are familiar with, but make no mistake. Ahithophel the Gilonite is a giant in this latest dire predicament for David. Remember when Absalom first launched his rebellion, his claim for the throne, he sent for Ahithophel. That was back in chapter 15. Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. Absalom sent for him to bring him on board. And the reason he did that was the reputation that Ahithophel had. And I read it for us earlier. At the end of chapter 16, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was is as, as if one count, consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel was a giant in those days. He was a man who had the kind of wisdom that everybody stopped and listened to. And they stopped and listened to him because he was always right, or at least nearly so. And everybody knew it. Everybody had that kind of regard for him. So it was bad enough for David that his own son Absalom had set this rebellion in motion. But when word reached David's camp that Ahithophel was on Absalom's side, for some of those folks, that must have sounded like a death sentence. Or at least, 
the death sentence for their cause. For some people, that must have meant this is it. We're doomed. Surely David's not going to survive this one. And they might have thought, insofar as we have cast our lot in with him, we're not going to survive it either. But remember, when word reached David that Ahithophel had joined up with Absalom, what was David's response? You remember a couple chapters back? He prayed. Back in chapter 15, it says this, It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That was a couple chapters back. And as I said, that's quite a prayer. That's David saying to God, this man who's been, who's been wise in the eyes of the people, as if he possesses your very wisdom, O Lord, make him look foolish. Now, we all know nothing's impossible for God. So it's not like David is asking God to do something that will be hard for God to do. There's no such thing. But David certainly is asking God to bring about a turn of events that, from a human vantage point, from a natural vantage point, is exceedingly unlikely, given Ahithophel's track record as an advisor, given his reputation. But that's what David asked God to do. And he asked God to do that because David knew God. As we heard last week in Psalm 3, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So that when David prays that prayer and says, O Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel the Gilonite into foolishness, that's David's way of saying, O Lord, be my shield now. Because David gets it, that this all hinges upon that. It all hinges on who's Absalom going to listen to? Whose advice is he going to follow? Lord, be my shield now. And the Lord did it. The Lord proved himself to be David's shield in this episode. And the way he did it was to bring it to pass that Ahithophel's advice was made to look foolish. And the way God brought that to pass was exactly in the way that David had envisioned. You remember David sent Hushai the archite back to Jerusalem. Hushai was willing to go with David as he's on the run. David says, no. You want to serve me? Here's how you can serve me. Go back. Go back to Jerusalem. Offer yourself up to Absalom as another one of his counselors, as another one of his advisors. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And that's exactly what happened. Remember Ahithophel in our chapter this morning? Gives advice. Says, let's go now, tonight. You just want David dead. We can do that tonight. We'll just send a group to do it. And it'll happen. And you need to understand, Ahithophel's advice was was good. It was shrewd. It would have worked. We know it would have worked. Because we're told that the Lord frustrated that good advice 
in order to bring harm upon Absalom. So it must be that Ahithophel's advice would have worked if Absalom had followed it. But Hushai was shrewd too, managed to spin that clever counter-counsel that won the day. You can almost imagine the moment when Ahithophel, the Gilonite, has given his advice, and it seems right in everybody's eyes. And Absalom says, well, bring Hushai the archite here. Let's, let's hear what he has to say. And they say to Hushai the archite, here's what Ahithophel has advised. What do you think? Can you just imagine the moment when Hushai says, this time, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. You can almost hear a gasp at that point. For Hushai to say that about Ahithophel, who's been regarded as wise with the wisdom of God, and Hushai says, now this time he's wrong. Instead, why don't you do this? And Hushai, it's brilliant. He doesn't just say, do this, do that. I mean, he spins this clever counter-counsel. He makes this speech that plays upon Absalom's vanity in some ways and that draws upon some things that are true but does so in such a way as to present this this counter-advice that seems plausible. And it wins the day. And that's what saved David's life. And very likely the life of everybody who had sided with him. This is one of the few moments in this unfolding Absalom story where we're given this explicit interpretation that God did this in order to fulfill his purpose. Right? For the most part, all of these chapters, the unfolding story of Absalom, it's just the facts, right? What's visible? Events and actions and reactions and causes and effects. But here in chapter 17, you have that one verse where it says that the Lord brought this to pass, that Hushai's advice should prevail instead of Ahithophel's advice because the Lord was determined that it should go that way and that Absalom's cause should fail. That's how the Lord protected David. So this this is a golden opportunity for us here this morning we think about what we can learn together. A golden opportunity for us to underscore a theme that we've touched on before as we've been making our way through First and Second Samuel, and it is the theme, it is the truth, that the Lord protects his servants. So long as he's got service for them to render, he's going to protect them. Even against all odds. It's a running theme in Scripture. How many times, as you're reading through Scripture, do you come across some story in which some believer, some servant of God, is protected, is preserved against all odds? And the Lord protected him precisely because the Lord had it in mind that that person would serve him, that it wasn't time to die, which sounds like a James Bond title wasn't time to die. And examples in Scripture are not hard to come up with. Moses. Surely Moses is one of them. Moses 
comes into the world as a baby with a death sentence practically hanging over his head because of what Pharaoh intends. So what do we read in Exodus 2? Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. The Lord protects this baby who in that way finds his way into the Egyptian royal house and he's preserved. He's given the name Moses and he's preserved. And then it happens again when he grows up and he kills an Egyptian. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. You see, just in the story of Moses, you have all of these instances in which the Lord protects him. Why? Because there's service for Moses to render. And so long as that's true, he can't die now. Here's another example. Elijah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah takes a stand for the true God. And Jezebel learns about it. And Jezebel doesn't just intend to have Elijah killed. She, she swears an oath. And she's the queen. She can make it happen. She, she, she says, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Elijah is able to flee. It's God's way of protecting him from Jezebel. But then it's not just Jezebel who wants Elijah dead. Then it's Elijah who wants Elijah dead. Because what do we read next? He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. He didn't want to wake up. But what does it say? Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. Jezebel wants him dead. He flees. Elijah wants to die. The Lord says, no. Wake up. Eat and drink. It's not your time. You will serve me, and your service isn't over. So it's true of Moses. It's true of Elijah. You know where this is going. It's going to Christ. It is preeminently true of Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary. When when he's a child, Herod wants him dead. And like Jezebel, we can say, Herod can do it. Herod the king. 
But behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, this is Matthew 2, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And then even when they come back, the Lord keeps protecting him. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. As a child, there are people who are a threat to Jesus. But in all of these different ways, the Lord protects him. And then it continues when he grows up as a man, as a servant. When he goes back to Nazareth to preach, and they're prepared to throw him off a cliff because they're that angry at what he said. The Father protects. Jesus escapes. It happens again in Jerusalem when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am, and they pick up stones to stone him. The Father protects him. And Jesus escapes. It happens again in Jerusalem. When he says, I and the Father are one. And they're determined to stone him. The Father protects. Jesus escapes. One more example, and it's Paul. That's why I read Acts chapter 9 for us earlier in our service. Paul comes to know Christ, comes to serve Christ. And there are people who want to kill him for it. This man who'd been sanctioning the killing of Christians. Now there are people who want to kill him because he's become one. And because he's preaching the gospel that's made him one. Acts chapter 9. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I mean, this is, this is drama. But it's the drama of the Lord protecting his own. Paul can't die now. Because the Lord has service for him to render. The point is this. The Lord protects his servants in each and every case. Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus, Paul. It was the Lord's purpose that his servant live on and serve until the time to die had come. And that time did eventually come for all of them. Moses died. David died. Elijah died. Taken up. Jesus died on the cross. Paul died. But they all died when the Lord had appointed that it should be so. That they might serve him in all the ways that he'd intended. And bringing this to February of 2022, that's still true. Still true for the servants of God. Christian, it is still true for you. I mentioned this a while ago, almost a year ago now, I think, when we touched on this theme way back in 1 Samuel, but I want to mention it again. Over the years, Dave has told us some stories about his beloved seminary professor, Dr. John Gerstner. 
But it wasn't just things that Dr. Gerstner said that were memorable. It was also something that Dr. Gerstner's wife, Edna, would say. Now and then she would say something like this, Christian, so long as God has work for you to do here on earth, you're immortal here. So long as God has work for you to do here on earth, you cannot die. And you're going to render that service. That doesn't mean that we can know when. God's appointed for us to die and go home to glory, but we can know. We can rest in the sure knowledge that God's going to preserve, protect, and defend us here on earth until the moment comes when it's time to go home. And that's one of those truths that can set us free from a paralyzing fear of death. And brothers and sisters, maybe you've felt that fear yourself. Or you know somebody who has. And not just death, but fearing all sorts of threats and dangers and close calls in such a way that it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Or fearing that for your loved ones. So maybe you're wishing that they don't get out of bed and go into a dangerous, threatening world. And so we can come back to this. We are in God's hands. And that includes God's timing. The Lord protects his own according to his purposes. And thank God for that because his purposes are the best. So that's the first of our two this morning, that point about protection. And then here's the second one, which is the point about provision. Right? I was saying that God protects David in this chapter. God also provides for David in this chapter. And we can take each of those two and embrace them. So let's pivot now from the protection point to the provision point. And here especially, we go to the very end of the chapter. I love how this chapter ends, 2 Samuel 17. There's something so sweet, so reassuring about the way the chapter concludes. Think about it. David and those who have sided with him, they're a company on the run. They're tired. They're probably scared because it doesn't look good. Probably scared because where are provisions going to come from when you're on the run? So what's the last thing we read in this chapter? You have these different folks with difficult-to-pronounce biblical names who come to David and his company. Look at verse 28. What did they do? What did they bring? They brought beds. Basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. I love the fact that they brought beds, among other things. Picks up on something that we were talking about last week. 
When we were looking at Psalm 3, where David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. We, we talked about this last week. There's just something about sleep. The most passive part of our lives, and yet it's such a huge part of our lives when it comes to our health and strength and well-being. In knowing that God is for us in a threatening world, there is peace that enables us to rest, but it doesn't hurt to have a bed to sleep on to. Knowing that you're at peace with God is the main thing when it comes to closing your eyes and getting rest, but it doesn't hurt if you can sleep on something that doesn't hurt your back. And so they bring them beds, this company on the run who've had to leave home. The other thing I love about this conclusion of the chapter is how detailed it is. It doesn't just say that those folks brought supplies, period. Or even sustenance and supplies. No, it's detailed. It says they brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd. You can make that your scripture memory verse this week. 2 Samuel 17, 28 and 29. So detailed. It's a way of highlighting the fact that these friends and allies of David, they knew what the needs were and they met those needs with specificity and thoughtfulness. They knew what the needs were. And they knew what they had to bring in order to meet those needs with specificity and thoughtfulness. And isn't that a lovely picture of the way that God cares for us? God knows our particular needs and He meets them particularly with specificity and thoughtfulness. He's that kind of wise and caring father. And I know you know this in your own experience, if you just stop and think about it. He often does that, often meets our needs like that, by means of the compassionate provision that comes our way from other people, just like it was in David's case. So it's a good reminder for us this morning to be specific, to be particular in our gratitude. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying something in prayer like, Lord, I thank you for your many blessings, period. It's okay to say that. It's okay to pray a prayer like that that's short and sweet, that isn't so detailed. But the point is, don't settle for a prayer life in which you never say more than that. Get detailed sometimes when you want to express your gratitude to God. So as a pastor, I don't just say, Lord, I thank you for your goodness to our congregation. I say, Lord, I thank you for these comfy chairs and for these magnificent acoustics. I thank you, Lord, for Tom, our skillful pianist who plays a real piano, and I thank you for Greg, our skillful barista who makes real coffee. Thank God. As a father, I don't just say, Lord, I thank you for your goodness to our family. No, I say, Lord, I thank you that our boiler was fixed and that I have a bed that doesn't hurt my back. Oh, and that my guitar was fixed. Thank God. 
particular provision calls for particular gratitude. Be grateful like that because God is good like that. And a verse like this one at the end of the chapter, which mentions beds and vessels and sheep and cheese and more, is a lovely little reminder of that. Be grateful like that because that's the way God is good. He's good to you. So, brothers and sisters, he's our provider. He's our protector as well, both of those. And he always will be. Remember our call to worship this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good so that you can testify. That he is good because he's been good to you. You've known it. You've tasted it. You've seen it. May it be so. And amen. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you in prayer now. And we we say it in prayer right now. We call you our protector and provider. We pray that you'd forgive us at times. We lose sight of them both. And we thank you for this reminder that they are both true. You will protect us here on earth. Even protect us from death. Until the time comes that you've appointed to bring us home. May that truth set us free, Father, from a paralyzing fear. We call you our protector. We say with David, you, O Lord, are a shield about us. And we call you our provider as well. Open our eyes, we pray, to see the particular blessings that you've given and loosen our lips to give you thanks for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.